0: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Revenue Rehab. I am your host, Brandy Starr, and we have another amazing episode for you today. I am joined by Tyler Shields. Tyler advises, guides, and operates high-tech startups, primarily in the B2B cybersecurity space. He is a former market analyst, engineer, product manager, marketing leader, and partnership manager. Tyler is also a board advisor and board member at multiple firms and an investment advisor for multiple venture capital and debt firms. Tyler's expert commentary has been referenced online and in print by publishers such as Rolling Stone, Bloomberg, Forbes, Reuters, and the LA Times. He's also contributed to multiple television and radio interviews for both the National Public Radio and the BBC. Tyler, welcome to Revenue Rehab. Your session begins now.
1: Wow, what an introduction. It's almost embarrassing to have it read out like that, but thank you.
0: (laughs) I am always impressed by, you know, the guests that I have and I learned something from the bios. Um, So the fact that you've been in, you know, Rolling Stone and Bloomberg, I feel privileged that you have come to the couch and are joining me on Revenue Rehab.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Um, so, before we jump in, I like to break the ice with a little woo-saw moment that I call buzzword banishment. So, tell me a buzzword that you'd like to get rid of forever.
1: Well, you're you're probably going to be surprised to hear it, as I'm as actually I'm sure most of your listeners will be surprised to hear it. But I think we need to get rid of the buzzword of product-led growth because I think it's actually a a false term. Um, And it only works in certain magical scenarios. Um, And it's, I think, a nirvana that too many marketers shoot for when it may not be right for their business.
0: Okay, I I can definitely support that. Uh, I can say overall, I believe in the PLG model, but I do agree that it has kind of become a hot thing that it seems like everyone needs to chase plg and you know it's not going to be right for all companies
1: that's exactly right i don't i don't dislike plg i just i love plg in the perfect circumstance and i don't think enough marketers understand what it takes to have plg be successful and what the circumstances really are for it to be successful
0: yeah, I, I see a lot of people that are trying to do this hybrid thing where it's going to be PLG, but then we'll have sales to support the later site. And it's like, that that's that's not what that means.
1: Yeah, but- and actually what I've, what I've started calling it is PLL, product-led leads, and that's okay. Go ahead and create product-led leads. Have your product get out there, get people interested in it, and then sell to them. That's totally fine, but it's a, it's quite a bit different than a pure PLG approach.
0: Yes, and I won't go down that rabbit hole because we could definitely <laughs> we spend could. the next hour talking about what's wrong with PLG. For sure. Uh, but I do like the term PLL, so I may, I may have to dig into that separately. Uh, Absolutely. But uh, now that we've gotten that off our chest, tell me what brings you to Revenue Rehab today?
1: Gosh, I, I think what, what brings me here mostly is to talk about how every marketer and every market leader can have a unique journey. And you don't have to come up through traditional approaches to marketing to become a c-suite executive in marketing right now i'm the cmo at a cybersecurity startup called jupiter one um, we're we're growing fast and you know my history yeah the last handful of years has been in marketing but i didn't i didn't come up through a marketing path uh, i came up through a very different approach to um, marketing which is much more i guess strategic and marketing centric or uh, sorry uh, engineering centric And then transferred and and got that into um, a marketing type of role.
0: Well, awesome. I am looking forward to digging into your journey. Um, And so I'm really excited. This My Journey series, uh, it was put together because figuring out their path um, is a hot topic amongst current executives as well as those that want to become executives and every time i meet people and hear their stories and and how their career has progressed i'm always so intrigued and learn something so i wanted to bring that to our listeners so you are the first journey that we are digging into so thank you for uh letting me figure out how to how to pull that out of you uh, live here on revenue rehab So tell me, I will start with a, um, where did your career begin and was it on purpose or did you fall into it?
1: (laughs) It's a great question. I apologize if I have the sniffles today, I'm coming off of a, a bit of an illness, so apologize in advance for that. But I would say I largely fell into every phase of my career, um, and the reason why and at the end you asked me to come up with one recommendation for everybody and my recommendation will will play directly off of this fact i've always just done what i enjoyed doing and i chased that right i always wanted to be happy day to day working on whatever it is i'm working and if i was no longer happy i found another way to be happy you know at that job or at a different job or at a at another stage of education Um, So actually, I I came up as a cybersecurity hacker, professional hacker for hire. That's where my roots are. I started doing that before I even graduated from undergrad uh, as a side business. Before it was even like a a, a thing that you could barely legally do, um, I was was doing it. So I came up through those ranks, became an engineer um, with a a computer science background. Um, From there, kind of went into... um, got my master's degree in computer science, ended up being in an R&D side, uh, uh, became a speaker at uh, different conferences on cybersecurity expertise and depth, and then kind of flipped, flipped things on its head, went back to business school, got a second master's degree in an MBA, and decided I wanted to build businesses. That That was my goal. It was never to be a CMO. It was to build businesses, whatever that meant. And so, um, ended up being an analyst for Forrester Research, and that was my transitional phase between engineering and cybersecurity deep expertise and where I ended up becoming an investor, uh, CMO, uh, advisor to mostly cybersecurity-related startups because it's all anchored in that understanding and the technology depth that I have. So I've always just followed what I thought would be fun to do next, right? Um, and it, it's that may not work for everybody, but it certainly did for me in my career.
0: I do love the approach of really trying to follow what you enjoy most because I mean, you know, you think about the number of hours and the percentage of our life that we spend at work and thinking about work and, you know, in school to lead to a job, it's like there there's a huge amount of time there and so if you're doing something that makes you miserable, um, or that you're even lackluster about. It's like you're investing a huge portion of your life to not enjoy it. Um, so I love that as a driving factor.
1: Yeah, and I would I would say like the transition periods were 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 funny for me because usually it came on the f- the fact that I was stagnant in learning, right? So. You know, I, I did a lot of cybersecurity uh, hacking for higher penetration testing, offensive security stuff, and then got bored with that. Said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to school. That was kind of my 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 twist was always, well, if I'm not getting enough out of my employer to make me happy, how can I figure it out for myself to make me happy? How can I continue to grow? And for me, that was always, all right, I'm gonna go back to school and get a master's degree in computer science. Do that for a while. Got tired of that. Okay, I'm gonna go back and get a get an MBA. Do that for a while, right? Um, so for me, it was always education. I don't think I can pull the trigger on a PhD, but trust me, I'm I'm pushing 50 and I thought about it. I've thought about going back and doing the PhD thing, uh, but I don't think I can pull the trigger on that. That's That might be a little too ambitious. Uh,
0: so I want to back up a little bit. So professional hacker for hire turned engineer, turned R&D. Um, I can see a very logical path there. Uh, those skill sets are very complementary. Uh, And then you became a speaker Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that because generally people who are very, you know, technology or engineering oriented tend to not like to be out front, um, you know, aren't great at being able to, you know, command the stage. So I want to hear a little bit about how you became a speaker and how you were able to be successful in that. Yeah, that's
1: actually, there's a couple of fun stories in that, um. What ended up happening was I was doing a bunch of deep computer science research for a company called Vericode at the time um, around mobile security and reverse engineering of, of different uh, binaries and applications and trying to understand if there was malware malicious code inside, inside the applications. Um, I did a bunch of work for them. And then I started going on the lecture circuit on the back of that, that work based on talking about the research that I did. So it was very academic style. Of, of speaking right out of the gate. Um, it's funny. The first time I actually did a, any public speaking was at a conference way, way back. It was uh, much earlier than this, uh, than that kind of phase we're talking about. And I remember that my first speaking engagement, I went up and there was probably probably close to 800 people in the room, 7, 800 people in the room. It was a massive ballroom at a conference in New York City. And I remember walking up on stage, completely blanking out, Like, I don't remember from the time I got on stage to the time I got off. But when I went back and watched the video, I literally read from a piece of paper my speech word for word. It was the worst speech (laughs) and experience ever. I got off the stage and one of my friends was like, good job. And I was like, go away. That was awful. Like, I don't even remember any of it. It was so bad. Um, But, you know, I think there was a turning point for me where I realized, hey, I know this content better than my audience. And when you kind of make that leap, when you're like, hey, I wrote this content, I created this research, I created this knowledge that nobody else has or very few people have, you become a lot more confident in your ability to speak about it. And I've also found that um, when you're doing public speaking, I think there's a, a, a normal curve almost to it where you get better and better and better and better as you speak the same talk at different conferences and events. And then you hit a peak where you're so bored with the content, you get worse and worse and worse, right? <laughs> um, and so I definitely had that curve. But it, 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 I would say the public speaking became more natural to me as I became aware of that people cared about the content. And then it just became kind of a natural flow for me, which is funny because I'm a natural introvert. I actually don't care for public speaking. It drains me. And I intentionally got out of it um for quite a while and I haven't done much public speaking in in a handful of years
0: okay and I know I have always heard that introverts make great speakers because they tend to prepare more Um, then, you know, I'm naturally very extroverted. I started doing public speaking in middle school, um, and I have had scenarios where it's been like two days before and I'm like, oh yeah, I should figure out what I'm saying. And so it is a little bit more for me of like, I'm going to take the stage and I'm going to wing it and it's still going to be amazing, um, and so that is sort of the downside to extroverted speakers is there is... But usually- I would argue,
1: I would argue mm-hmm. you're capable of that because you know your content so well. That is like true. Like in your heart, you created it. You truly believe what you're speaking about. And so that actually happened for me too. Early on, I would prep big time as an introvert. And then I got to the point where I just like, hey, I know this content so well because I built all the research. I built all the stuff behind it that I could actually uh, not even prep, just walk up on stage have a handful of slides ready and talk about it for an hour. Um, So that did, that's also something that I think as you become a more frequent speaker uh, and more recognized, uh, you become just more confident, more and more confident. You can actually kind of ad-lib a lot more. Today, I I pretty much will only do conversational like panels and moderated type stuff because I love the conversational. It's so natural for me because you're just speaking from the heart.
0: Yeah, yeah. And those are a lot of times for the audience the most insightful because they tend to, you know, they tend to go where the conversation goes and, and not in a, yeah. in a planned path. Yeah. Um, so you talked about education and when you got to the point where you recognized that you wanted to build businesses, that you went back for your MBA. And I know this is always a hard decision for. You know, especially when you're so far into your career, it's like, do I go back to school? Do I have time to go back to school? And I've known a number of people as they've moved up, have been in that sort of crossroads of, do I need this education? Is it worth it? So talk about your decision wow. to go back for your MBA.
1: Yeah. So I went back twice, right? I went back to get the master's of computer science. Then I went back to get the MBA. Um, when I did the master's of computer science, I just felt I needed something to break through the knowledge barrier to get to the next level. But I don't think everybody needs that. Like I know tons of people that do not even have undergrad that can do fantastic computer science style research and speak on the lecture. So you don't need that. Um, But for me, I think it was a formal education that helped me internalize all the concepts. And I will say that later on the investing, the building businesses, all of that, I can't do what I do today without that underpinning of computer science. Because the way I approach business is actually built upon, does the technology do what you think it does? Does it actually technically work? And that allows me to make really strong investments. That allows me to make great decisions, understand differentiators in companies, all of those kinds of things. And it's the underpinning of the computer science that helps me do that. Now, I also couldn't do that without the MBA to understand how the finance works, to understand how the how the go-to-market engine might work, to understand what I describe as the complex system of a business, right? How all of those cogs, you turn one, they all turn, right? Um, And so for me, I think it was the formal education path was required because it's just how my brain works. But I wouldn't say it's mandatory. I think you can learn, like, especially in today's world with so much information online, I think you could learn it all self-taught. But I needed that formal education to actually get to that point.
0: Okay. And that that is a good, you know, I mean, even thinking about I've got four young adults who all had to make the decisions on whether they were going to college or not. And, you know, I had to have that conversation with them to say, it's not mandatory. Like you can get where you want to be with or without it to a certain extent. Um, and, And so it's interesting that you have that same perspective because I have talked to people who have like, Reach the VP level, and they're like, I feel like in order to get into the C suite, I need to go back for a master's. And I'm like, eh, like, but do you? Like, you know, yes. it's,
1: it's such a tough discussion because there are certainly glass ceilings that you'll bump into without the credential stamp. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that you can easily get in if you don't have it. Um, Now, you got to understand my world is a very unique world. I'm not in like, you know, retail or, you know, uh, consumer packaged goods or anything like that. I am in cybersecurity, which is a very unique space where one can self differentiate by their technical background. Um, So that allows you to break through some of those ceilings, I think, occasionally. But you know, if I go if I go across the board, excluding the founders of the company, which don't always have advanced degrees, excluding the founders, most C suite do have advanced degrees, and I can understand why people would think that you're bumping into a glass ceiling because it's harder to get hired.
0: Um, that's a great point. Um, so let's talk about being an analyst. Uh, in sure. my world, you know, as a marketer, there is a little bit of a love hate relationship with analysts. Sure. Um, and so tell me about being on that side of the fence and what that's like and, and how you felt like, you know, what made that the right next move for you?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you that um, there's a few, a few everybody, I think everybody probably can say this, but there's certainly a few jobs or roles or positions you've had in your career that are uh, instrumental in advancing you to the next level. Right. There's you can usually pick out. Oh, my gosh, that one was super important. Like there was a consulting firm I worked for called At Stake when I was in my young 20s, instrumental in jumping me to the next level. I would say that Forrester Research was 100 percent instrumental in taking me to the next level of understanding how business actually operates at a strategic level and how to help guide executives. Now, um, I want to comment on the love, hate stuff first, and then I'll talk about <laughs> the you. I got from it. I I understand why it's a love-hate because it's super easy to be, to think that analysts are influenced by money, right? And biased and bought and pay to play. And some 100% are. I'm not going to say that there aren't those out there that are like, hey, give me 80 grand. I'll write a report that says you're awesome, right? They definitely exist. Now, if you get a reputable firm and you get reputable analysts within the firm, the individual analyst is key. They will write what they truly believe regardless of, 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 where the money's coming from for the business and that's how I prided myself right and I wrote when I was an analyst at Forrester I wrote predominantly on startups because that's what I was excited about younger companies that were doing innovative things given my technology background that's where I did my writing um it didn't matter who was paying Forrester or what right so I think it's an individual analyst issue and you got to make sure you find the right analyst for your market now from my personal value it took me from "Hey, this guy talks about uh, you know reverse engineering binaries, nerd, 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 nerd," to "Oh, wait a minute, he can also talk about how that impacts a business and what's the strategic direction of Citrix or VMware or Mobile Iron based on the technologies at, at choice, right?" And that that's that era is when I was in Rolling Stone, the BBC Network, all of those things you talked about that were mildly blushing for me at the beginning <laughs> of this conversation. Um, that's where all of that recognition came from, right? Is in that era, I got, I got a chance to speak on topics that I was researching and, and analyzing. And the cool thing is you never lose that knowledge on how to do it. And as a matter of fact, right now I'm starting a Substack as we speak, which is going to be my musings, my thoughts, my analyst stuff. I'm not going to get paid for it. I'm just going to put it out as a way to, as an outlet, a creative outlet for myself, as, an, as a, basically a freelance analyst mm-hmm. for nothing.
0: Awesome. Um, So if someone is listening to this and they are wondering if, you know, going down the path of becoming an analyst might be for them, um, what thoughts do you have in how to self-evaluate whether, you know, like the good, the bad, the ugly, like how do I know if this is a path I might want to take?
1: Yeah, it's a good question actually and I've I've helped a couple newer analysts who were thinking about the role who, who approached me and said, Hey, can you talk to me about it? I've actually took one of them out to lunch locally here. Um, and we had a long discussion about it. And I think the good is it's a huge jump start for your career. You're going to sit with every senior executive, every suite C suite of the markets you cover. You're going to get to sit with all of them. You'll go face to face with them. You'll help them understand their strategy, their differentiators, uh, and you will help enterprises who want to understand what products to buy, how to buy them, et cetera. You'll get, you'll get, uh, visibility into both sides of that very, very intimately. Um, But what makes a good analyst is someone who's passionate about that market. If they're just going to be sit back and be like, hey, I'm just going to write stuff and punch the clock, they'll never be a successful analyst. You have to have strong opinions. And I I always say I love the phrase strong opinions weekly held because I want the feedback. I want the commentary. I want to learn. And that's what makes a good analyst listen, as an analyst, you're going to put out tons of future predictions. This market's going that direction. This is going to happen that direction. You always get to get out of jail free card as an analyst because you just bring up the ones you're successful with. You, you <laughs> ignore the losers, right? But in reality, the losers, the one you miss, like I predicted mobile security would be the biggest market in history. It floundered and died. Like it it went nowhere. But I learned from that why, right? And now in future future statements, I won't make that same mistake, right? And so I think you have to be opinionated. You have to be able to take feedback, both good and bad, because you'll get ripped by vendors that you say are bad. They're going to rip right into you. So you have to be thick-skinned. Um, and you have to just think of it as a passion project where you tell the truth. And if you stick behind that, I think you can make a good analyst.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I know uh, what's next is is a common uh, topic. And when people don't have insight into it, it's like, maybe I shouldn't try that um but that that always helps um so let's shift gears a little bit because I know that you are also an investor uh, and an advisor and sitting on boards so let's talk about that uh was that something that you sought out to do uh did opportunities kind of pop up and you know you said what the hey like tell me more about how you got into that side of business
1: yeah it's a, it's a really really Great question. Um, the, the very first uh, advisory role that I ever took for a startup was accidental after I came out of an, being the analyst role and went into a, a, a head of marketing role actually was right out of analyst. Um, a company reached out to me and said, Hey, can you help us get into the Forrester wave? Can you help us understand the process better, etc? I was like, Yeah, sure. And they're like, we'll make you an advisor to the company help, help advise us on this one thing. It's okay. And that was my very first one. So it was kind of accidental. Um, but from there, it was kind of like, you know, I enjoyed the work of helping a company do something and, and what it ended up morphing into generally was helping a company devise what their go-to-market should look like, given a certain technical capability, because there's not a lot of people out there that, that can really talk about the go-to-market, the marketing, the revenue, the, the business side of it. And get super deep and talk about the bits, the bytes, the assembly language. Like there's not a whole lot of people that can make that glue. And so what I started doing was just as I got introduced to new startups through different friends and stuff, just offering free of charge, karma based, what can I do to help you? And that kind of got me into advising a handful of companies that were like, well, you can do this. I'm like, okay, let's go. Like, you don't want anything for it? Nope. Like I'll meet with you guys every other week for an hour, help you figure it out. Okay. Well, fast forward six months of doing that, and they're like, hey, we're we're going to make you an official advisor. We feel bad we're not paying you for this, right? Things like that started <laughs> happening to me. Um, and on the back of that, it started becoming, hey, we're going to raise an angel round. Do you want to get involved in the angel round? Yes, I do. Let's, let's start getting involved in angel deals. Um, and so it really came from just wanting to help others. 100% karma-based is where all that came from.
0: That's beautiful. Um, and it's... You know when you do something really well, um, and when your intentions are in the right place, like I do think what happened to you is what happens. Like people are like, Yeah, yeah let me give you my money. Um, a- as opposed to some people who chase the money and think, like, oh, you know, being an advisor is like a whole extra, you know, stream of income, and you know, really go into it for that. Um really interesting. Um, and so the, the last area that I want to dig into, because CMOs are our primary audience, so I would be remiss if I did not dig in more uh, around your journey as a head of marketing. Sure. Um, what have you seen as the biggest challenge as you have been leading marketing organizations?
1: Wow. That, that's a really good question because I can answer it in so many different ways, right? I can answer it in the like stage zero way. Like what's the biggest challenge when you're first starting a startup, right? And gaining, gaining traction. Um, and I would say the hardest thing there is creating enough of a buzz and, and content that gets people excited. Um, that's hard to do when you have no brand. Um, you really have to, and this is where the analyst background comes in handy for me, because I can get in there and write the content that people find interesting and start the buzz train going, right? Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I think I kind of fell into the head of marketing role was the kind of that PMM content creator capability. Um, and I think that's hard to find. Like I, f- I find that a lot of these younger startups anyways have trouble finding people that can write at a talented level. the the type of content that will generate an audience and buzz and following to a new company or a new product. So that's kind of one answer to that. The second answer is the scale problem, right? The scale problem is totally different. And at some point you go from, Hey, I'm the, I'm the person creating the content, the, the engine, all of the hands-on tactical to, Hey, I'm the person that has to lead and hire and mentor and grow. And it's two different stages and two different massive difficulties when it comes to growing the organization. Um, It's hard to do both right um you're usually better at one than the other um i don't know talk to the people that i've hired and see if i'm a good leader but um i i like to think that maybe i'm okay at both but i think those are the two problems you run into
0: okay and i know um from talking to some heads of marketing that are at those you know stage zero those early stage companies where you know they are the head of marketing but for the most part they are the marketing team yep. um there. one of the things that i hear is the struggle in not getting stuck there like you know i've talked to people where they're like yeah i'm at my fifth stage zero company you know there's some volatility there you know from a career perspective sure. and they find it difficult to make that jump into you know, more established or even larger company. Um, any thoughts or advice on why that happens or how people can not get stuck uh, just being that team of one?
1: Yeah, that's that's. Um, are you are you specifically talking about the what I call the two year bullseye, the two and a half year bullseye? Meaning you're a stage zero startup marketing guy, gal. Two to two and a half years later, you're no longer there, no matter what. That yeah. kind of. Yeah. So <laughs> that's you know what. I would I would say if you're good at that and really good at that, there's nothing wrong with saying that's what I do, and and every two and a half years going and doing another one, getting a massive equity jump, being successful at the at that next one, and doing it again. However, if that's not something that excites you and you consider that boring, or you've you've done your third one, you're like I don't want to do this anymore. You almost have to bite the bullet and go back go to a big company. Now, I think for me, I get stuck in that role. Like I'm, I'm seen as the zero to let's call it 20 million ARR guy. And that's because that's what I'm good at. And that's also because I did not come up through traditional marketing at scale. I didn't work at a, you know, marketing role at Uber or Airbnb or insert massive tech company here. Right. I came up as an engineer who learned to build marketing GTMs from the ground up, but I've never actually scaled one past 20 million. Right. So For me, if I wanted to go do that, which I kind of don't, but if I did, I would go back and say, hey, give me some kind of super senior like VP or something at one of those companies and get that experience on the resume. I think anybody can make the move they want if they push themselves into that role, right? And stretch their capabilities and spend some time doing it. You'll be able to grow there too.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is sometimes that we need to step back in order to be able to step forward. I wouldn't even
1: say it's a step back, right? I I would argue that the zero to 20 million kind of roles like I take, you're probably getting paid the same amount as a senior director or VP at some of these massive companies, right, because they're paying so high. Um, And you're at a startup that's more equity driven. Um, But that being said, it's more about, again, following what, what you're passionate about. If you're passionate about growth and scale at the larger size, find a way to go do it. And I think anybody can figure that out if they put enough passion and time into you know, their network and looking for job openings and pushing their way into that kind of role. You could do that too. I've always throughout my entire career said, this is what I want to do next. And I went and got it. right. And that's what I would suggest to somebody who might be stuck in that zero to 20 and doesn't want to be there.
0: I love it. Um, Well, talking about our challenges is just the first step and nothing changes if nothing changes. So I like to uh, give action items and in traditional therapy, the therapist gives the client homework, but here at Revenue Rehab, I like to flip that on its head and ask you to give us some homework. So um, what one thing, one action item would you give to our listeners who are trying to figure out how they build that career path uh, from wherever they are to where they'd like to be?
1: Hey, I'm going to cheat and give you one and a half. Uh, okay. the half. The half is be passionate about whatever you're doing, right? And and you can hear it from me. I was passionate about tech. I was passionate about business. I was passionate about doing the karma thing, right? Passion, passion, passion. Right. Be passionate about what you're doing. But the 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 one thing I will tell anybody is that. If there's nobody that can stop you, if you want something, you have to figure out what that next step in that path is for you. And I would argue, go figure out how you can be better than everybody else in your field and leverage that differentiator. Almost consider yourself like a product. Leverage that differentiator to take you to the next level. I'm known as the person who can get into the weeds of the tech and can market it, right? In cyber. That's that's my differentiator that not a lot of marketers have. Um, what's your differentiator. So my homework would be go figure out what your differentiator is and then leverage it to success.
0: Perfect. I love that. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed our discussion, uh, but that's our time for today. Uh, But before we go, how can our audience connect with you?
1: Yeah, I'm uh, at TXS, which are my initials, Tyler, no middle name shields, TXS on Twitter. Uh, you can catch me on LinkedIn. If you reference the show when you connect with me on LinkedIn, I will actually connect with you because uh, I don't generally connect with random connections. But if you say you saw me on Revenue Rehab, I'll be happy to connect with you and chat with you on there. Catch me on Twitter. Uh, you can always email tyler.shields at gmail.com. Happy to respond to inquiries.
0: Awesome. And I know that you also have a podcast. Um, so go ahead. I like to to leave room for the shameless plug.
1: Yeah, I have a couple of them. So I actually am a, a co-host on a show called Enterprise Security Weekly, which is done every every Thursday. And then uh, I currently co-host a show called Cyber Therapy, which is funny given the given the content here, uh, called Cyber Therapy, which is hosted by Jupiter One. Uh, Jupiter One.com is the company where I'm a CMO. So you can always catch me at either of those podcasts as well.
0: Awesome. We will make sure to leave both of those links in the show notes. Um, And for anyone who is listening, who is uh, wanting to continue learning more about others' career path, I encourage you to go back to episodes nine, where we talked about uh, uncoupling as a CMO, and then as well as episode 20, where we talked about some other CMO exit strategies. Tyler, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thanks, everyone, for uh, tuning in. I have enjoyed my conversation with Tyler. I can't believe we're at the end. We will see you next time. You've been listening to Revenue Rehab with your host, Brandy Starr. Your session is now over, but the learning has just begun. Join our mailing list and catch up on all our shows at RevenueRehab.live. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Revenue Rehab. This concludes this week's session. We'll see you next week.